I promise we will be out of here by about 3 or 3.30, so you'll only miss the first half at most, okay? We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning, continuing our series, the third week of our series, When Love Comes to Town, focusing on individual encounters where people's lives are transformed. So we're going to move out of the Gospels this morning and look at an account of Philip in the book of Acts and his encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, social commentators today are saying that we live in what is now called a distracted age. Technology has come so far in our lifetime. And it's improved society in many, many ways, but it always comes at a cost. There was a recent research project that was done focusing on teenagers' relationships with their parents. And what is the one thing that you would want to change about the relationship that you have with your parents? The number one answer was that parents would put their phones down and spend more time talking to their children. Now, I know none of us in here spend a lot of time on our phones. But society at large is spending an inordinate amount of time on these little devices that we keep in our pocket, which is why we live in what is now called a distracted age. In the story we're going to look at this morning, Philip is sensitive to the Spirit leading him. He's not distracted. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. This is what Luke records for us. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I? unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. 
And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip does four specific things in this passage that I want us to take and apply to our own lives. Now, the first thing he does is that he is relying on the Spirit. He leaves and he travels down the road to Gaza. And Luke tells us that this is a deserted place. Now, earlier in Acts chapter 8, Philip had just spent time preaching to the masses in Samaria. But now what is he going to do when he encounters one person? Will he bring forth the same type of enthusiasm and energy in preaching the gospel to one as he would the masses? See, I can identify with this because for me, it's much easier to talk to a room full of people than two or three. We get energy, many preachers, from speaking to a large group of people. But will we bring the same enthusiasm, the same passion, when we're meeting one-on-one with somebody? And so Philip, the Spirit tells him, I want you to go over to this chariot. And he encounters an Ethiopian. Traveling from what seems like the end of the world to Jerusalem to worship. And he is returning home. Now in the Greco-Roman world, Ethiopians were viewed with awe and astonishment. Not only because they traveled so far to come to Jerusalem, but because their dark skin was not something typically seen. In fact, if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, you'll actually find that Ethiopians were excluded in Israel from all of the same privileges that the other Israelites had. So not only is Philip reaching out to somebody who nobody is used to seeing and looking at, he's actually stepping across a cultural boundary. And he does this, and he shares the gospel with him. You know, the transformation that people endure, or that you endured when you came to faith in Christ, is something that only the Spirit of God can do in you. See, many times I think we're under the impression that it's our persuasive words, our knowledge of the Bible, our answer to everyone's questions that makes them want to come to faith in Christ. But I want to relieve you of thinking that that's the case this morning. It's not your knowledge of the Bible. It's not your persuasive words. It's not your answer to every single question that somebody has. But it is the burden that you have on your heart for somebody that you know doesn't know Jesus. It's the Spirit that brings people to faith in Christ. But it's our prayers and our burdens oftentimes that begin the work of the Spirit moving in people's lives. Charles Taylor, the great philosopher, wrote an 800-page book called A Secular Age. And I've committed in 2019 that I'm going to start and finish this book. But one of the things he talks about is over the last 500 years, the culture has transformed the way we view 
the self. It used to be that we believed in what is known as a porous self. A self that is open to external influences, such as the Spirit of God, demons. But now, he says, we live in a world that is known as the buffered self. A world that has eliminated external influences upon the self. So the Spirit of God, when you dialogue with somebody and you talk about the Spirit of God, somebody who doesn't have a faith background, it's going to sound completely foreign to them because what a buffered self teaches is that we are the center of the universe, not God. This is the world that we live in. This is what you need to be aware of when you go and talk with people about Jesus and how the Spirit of God convicted you of sin. That's not going to mean something to a lot of people. So you have to explain to them what that means. Because they most likely believe in what is known as a buffered self. They are in control of their destiny. They are at the center of the universe, not God. So Philip comes up to this man, relying on the Spirit. He goes over to his chariot. And Luke tells us that he sits down with the Ethiopian. Now, if you've ever been a part of what we know as a standing meeting. This is an indication to everyone in the room that this meeting is not going to last very long. But if you've ever been invited over to somebody's house, if you've ever been invited into somebody's office and they ask you to have a seat, that is an indication that they want to spend time with you. There is a difference between me standing up here and talking to you and me grabbing this stool and sitting down with you. You see how much more conversational this is than standing. So Philip is invited to the chariot, and the man says, I want you to come and sit down with me. Now, I'm not going to sit down today because I'm too antsy to do that. But just know, if you were to come to my office and talk with me, I would not stand. I would sit and give you the proper time, okay? But he sits down with the man. Because when you sit down with somebody, that shows intentionality. That shows that you care about the person. And he sits down. And they begin talking about the book of Isaiah. Philip explains to him exactly what those texts are talking about. You know, we as a society prize multitasking. But in the book, The Organized Mind... Daniel Levitin pointed out that when we multitask, even though it is prized by society, it actually has major physiological dysfunction for our brain. Because when we multitask, the stress hormone, known as cortisol, is released. And adrenaline. And those are things that cause our mind to be scrambled and can create mental fog. In the same way, the prefrontal cortex of our brain has a novelty bias to it. Meaning that when something new is brought in front of us and we take advantage of looking at it, whether it be a phone, whether it be an email, whether it be a phone call, our prefrontal cortex is telling us, I like this, I want to do this. So we think when we're trying to focus on a project, but we're also answering an email or sending a text message, we think we're doing good. But actually... It's your prefrontal cortex 
that is the part of the brain that is responsible for you focusing. So you think you're doing good by getting all of these tasks done. But almost everyone says that if you will focus on one thing at a time, you will get more done. Many of you have probably read books or articles that talk about how we should only check email a couple of times a day. Because if you've ever been at work working on a project and an email comes in, it drives your attention and your focus away from the task at hand. So I decided to experiment with this a couple of weeks ago. And I checked my email once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And believe it or not, I was actually much more productive. So we have all of these distractions. And multitasking, we think, makes us more efficient. But studies say it actually doesn't. Now, luckily for Philip, he didn't have a smartphone buzzing him every time a text message came or an email came. But he sits down with this Ethiopian eunuch crossing a cultural boundary and he shares the gospel with him. So the question for us then is who in your life are you currently sitting down with? Who are you investing in? Who are you intentional in your time with? I told you a couple of weeks ago that I was going to share with you an outreach plan that we as a church are going to do this year. In your worship guide, there is a little flyer this morning. I want you to pull that out. This is called For the City. And here's what I'm going to ask every single individual in this room to do. I want you to identify four people in your life from four different networks. One family member, one coworker, one person in your neighborhood, and then one additional person that you hang out with. Maybe just somebody that you work out with at the gym. Maybe it's the parents of a kid on your son's baseball team. Somebody that you run around with in some circle, most likely recreational. And I want you to identify one person in each of those four categories. And then I want you to do the following. I want you to pray for them. I want you to commit to pray for these individuals every day for the entire year. And then I want you to invite them to be a part of something in your life. Whether that be over for dinner in your home. Whether that be to the spot where you watch Mardi Gras parades. Whether that be a Super Bowl party. Whether that be a church event, small group, worship, Easter egg hunt, fall festival, church picnic, whatever it is. Invite them to be a part of your life. Then I want you to share with them. I want you to share a resource with them. Maybe an article that you've read that helped you in your faith. A book that you're currently reading. Share life with them. And then the last thing I want you to do, which is the most important, is tell them about your faith story. Tell them how God has changed your life. Every single week, we're going to highlight a different one of these aspects. So one week, we might pray for the people that we have on this list. Now next Sunday, we're going to have 
a commitment card in the worship guide. I'm going to give you one week to pray through these names, ask God who he would have lay on your heart, and then next Sunday you are going to put the name of somebody in each of those four categories. If you don't know people outside of people in this church, you have a week to meet new people. Okay? If all you know is Christians, you need to get with it. You need to have people in your life that don't know Jesus. So four people next Sunday, and we're going to bring these cards down, and we're going to lay them on this altar. And we're going to commit to praying and inviting and sharing and telling the good news of Jesus with these people. We're going to sit down with people in 2019. We're going to get intentional with people that we know that are not followers of Christ and make sure by the end of the year, even if nobody comes to faith in Christ, that they hear the good news of Jesus. Philip sat down with the Ethiopian. We're going to sit down with people and be intentional about doing it. We also see that when Philip sits down with the Ethiopian, he asks him, I don't understand what I'm reading. Can you help me? And Luke tells us this. Luke says that Philip started with the passage in Isaiah, but then went on to share the good news of Jesus with him. In other words, you have to get to Jesus. See, many times, I love that Luke put this in here. He actually tells us, even though it's obvious, he tells us that Philip opened his mouth. Because I'm convinced that many times we will do everything possible to identify with being a follower of Jesus, except actually opening our mouth and telling people. Until you open your mouth and tell people that you follow Jesus. You are no different from anyone else in this world who is trying to be a good person and trying to make the world a better place. You do not need Jesus to make the world a better place, and you do not need Jesus to make you a good person. There are plenty of books and other teachers that you can follow to help you do that. So why is Jesus so important? You need Jesus because he's the only one who can save you. That's what sets him apart from every other single person that you could follow. I've told you many times before, I know a lot of people who are better human beings than I am. And they are not followers of Jesus. So we don't follow Jesus just to make us better people. We follow Jesus because he saves us from our sin. It's interesting. This is why Jesus is so important. You know, I've had many conversations with people. And it inevitably always comes to these types of questions. Well, how can I trust the Bible? How can I know that Jesus is the only way? When did dinosaurs roam the earth? I get that one a lot. I'm not a paleontologist. I don't know exactly when dinosaurs were roaming the earth. So I always tell people, look, these are good questions. Questions that I hope to one day answer for you. But can I just tell you about Jesus right now? And what sets him apart from every other religious figure in the history of the world? Get to Jesus. 
In order to get to the most important part about Jesus' life, you have to get to the cross. You must get to the cross. Because it is only there when the power of the gospel can be unleashed to its full potential. That Jesus took our place. The wrath and the judgment that should have been on us because of our sin, Jesus took on himself. Why? Because he loves all of humanity. Some of you are thinking, that sounds pretty preachy to me. I'm not asking you to preach to anybody. I'm asking you to do this in a conversation. In a dialogue that you are having, perhaps with one of these four people that you're going to identify. I'm not asking you to dictate your Christian faith to somebody. I'm asking you to invite them in to your Christian faith. To let them see how God has made a difference in your life. There is a difference between dictating faith and inviting somebody in to be a part of your life. We have to get to Jesus. And then number four, we have to join in the transformation. Now, Philip is whisked away and the Spirit of God removes him from the scene. But Luke records for us that after the Ethiopian is baptized, he is immediately changed. And he walks away joyous. And he walks away transformed because of what Jesus and the Spirit of God did in his life. Most likely, you're not going to be whisked away. And the Spirit of God is not going to remove you from the very people that He has asked you to identify in this For the City campaign that we're going to be doing. Once somebody professes faith in Christ, our job is not done. Our job is only beginning. Because the act of discipling somebody, doing life with them, walking alongside of them as they grow in Christ, is equally as important as sharing Christ with them. Dr. Alan Tuff is somebody who studies how adults learn. And he wrote a book about this. Now, many of you have known or know about the 80-20 principle. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Dr. Tuff developed what he calls the 70-20-10 principle. And this has been replicated by many others as well. And here's what it says. Adults, when they learn, 70% of their time should be spent doing. 20% of their time should be done through mentoring. And only 10% of their time should be spent in a traditional lecture, master-teacher format. So what does that mean? Well, that means the way that we traditionally have structured church is that we often spend 70% of our time discipling people through lecture, through formal master-teacher. Only 20% of our time in mentoring and conversations, and then less than that, 10% of our time is all we spend doing. But Dr. Tuff would actually tell you it should be the other way around. So as somebody who comes to faith in Christ, you need to be spending at least 70% of your time with that person doing life with them. 
If you want to read the Bible, read the Bible with them together. Then spend 20% of your time discussing it. Then spend 10% of your time with you actually teaching them as they listen. If you want to memorize Scripture, you need to be spending 70% of your time doing that alongside of them, 20% of your time in conversation about what you're memorizing, and only 10% of time you explaining to them what these verses mean. The 70-20-10 principle is how Dr. Tuff says adults best learn. Now, I know I've scared many of you this morning. And as soon as I said I want you to identify four people that you know are not saved and develop relationships with them, I lost you. Because your mind is going crazy right now. Oh, my goodness. I just realized I don't know a lot of lost people. You do. You just are not thinking about it. I promise you. You know people that do not know Jesus. There's a very, very, very popular book out right now. The 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. I haven't read it. Most of the books I tell you about I've read and I can endorse. I can't endorse this one. But I stole something from it nonetheless. Here's what it says. He says that we all crave order and chaos. But we would rather spend most of our time in the orderly parts of our life and very, very little time in the chaotic parts of our life. But what he says is, it is in chaos where you are actually challenged. So what he advises is have one foot in the part of your life that is orderly, and then leave the other foot in the part of your life that is chaotic. Because it is only during chaos that we are challenged. This for the city emphasis, is going to feel chaotic to many of you. It's going to feel like you don't have control and order. But remember, this is when you will be challenged. Four people in four different circles of influence that you can impact, that you can sit down with, that you can share the gospel with, that you can invite to be a part of your life. There's another excellent book that I have read called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the premise of this book is that Christians should be practicing radically ordinary hospitality. She says in this book that many of us have forgotten what it's like to practice hospitality. We've forgotten what it's like to invite people into our homes for a meal. We've forgotten what it's like to reach out because we're so busy, because we're so distracted. Here's what she says. I love this quote. She says, Our post-Christian neighbors need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home. That includes neighbors in prayer, food, friendship, childcare dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. You know how to make friends. You need to apply the same things that you applied with the people that you know in this room and apply it to those outside of this room. 
So we're going to enter a time of chaos together. And we're going to see how the Spirit of God works in the people that he lays on our heart for 2019. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this story of Philip and how this Ethiopian man was transformed because Philip was willing to sit down with him and share the gospel with him. God, forgive us for not being intentional. Forgive us for being so distracted and so busy that we forget that our ultimate purpose on this earth is for people to know you. God, lay on our hearts four people that we can invest in this year. That we can pray for. That we can invite. That we can share. And that we can tell about Jesus. God, we have to rely on your spirit to do this. We can't do it in our own power. We're not comfortable doing it. Transform our hearts. Show us how this can be done. Soften our hearts to those around us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.